Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hossein. Well, Maz, we're we're speaking right now in the in the midst of this period where there's been an extension of the temporary truce between Hamas and the Israeli state. And I, I, I thought it would be good just to start off by kind of taking stock since there's a pause in the massive bombardment and ground operations that have been going on for many, many weeks, although it's intensifying in the West Bank and we can talk about that. But in terms of, of Gaza, we have this moment where there is this pause in the intense bombardment and ground operations to, to take stock of where things are in this war right now, because we don't hear almost anything about the ground war that's being fought between Hamas and the Israeli forces. Um, We did see during at least one of the hostage handovers, Hamas choosing to do it right in the center of Gaza City, a place that the Israelis had said that they had conquered. So, you know, clearly there's there's a projection of an image that Hamas wants to send during this moment when the eyes of the world are, are focused on it. But give us your sense of, of where we are right now in this utterly horrifying war that's been going on now for, for seven weeks, Maz. Sure. I think the images of the last few days show that uh, Israel is nowhere close to achieving its military objectives in Gaza to date. It's been over a month of very, very intense bombardment and invasion of the Gaza Strip. And clearly what we can see from the hostage release and the sort of presentation that Hamas has done around it in its own channels, that their command and control structure is clearly still intact. Their leadership is still directing events, they're able to conduct negotiations and communicate with the outside world. And they're also able to go on the streets of Gaza and draw crowds and carry out events like this exchange with minimal disorder. So what we're seeing is an organization which has not been broken by this assault. There have been some estimates from the Israeli side of how many Hamas fighters they think have killed during the war so far. And the numbers are in the low thousands. Even the most uh, conservative numbers still put it not anywhere near a, a level you'd say Hamas has been destroyed. Hamas is believed to have around thirty to 40,000 fighters and the loss of a couple of thousand fighters is something they've surely accounted for when they started this operation. So I think it shows that this war is nowhere near its completion. And whatever that Israel has done in this massive bombardment of Gaza, which has killed many, many thousands of civilians and destroyed much of Gaza City, they haven't defeated Hamas. Hamas is still there and they're still very, very much in control and embedded in Gaza. And Maz, you've been monitoring the official communications coming from Hamas. I mean, you know, they they had their social media accounts um, shut down, TikTok blocked, um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, but um, they still are are operating uh, to an extent on Telegram. What what is the messaging that Hamas is sending out uh, throughout this this conflict? Because there's there's two very distinctly different narratives um, in terms of what's coming out of Israel and what's coming out of Hamas. But Hamas does regularly send out updates and videos. So give a sense of what you're what you're hearing from Hamas's media channels. So this is very important because since October seventh, in the Western press and Israeli press, there's been a very particular narrative of what happened on that day and happened since, specifically focusing on the atrocities against civilians and that aspect of the operation. If you look at Hamas's own official channels, which is used to speak to the Arabic-speaking world and its own followers and supporters and potential supporters, 
The entire thing is depicted as a very professional and sanitized military operation for the most part, by no means focused on civilians, a very successful assault on the Israeli military. And since then, they've depicted themselves as treating hostages very well, uh, according, acting basically in accordance with what we call human rights standards, international law, even in their own channel's uh, description. So it's a very, very different view of the entire situation. And if you're consuming Hamas media and Hamas channels, your understanding of your understanding of what happened on October 7th and what's happening today will be very, very different from what it is if you're consuming CNN or uh, Israeli news and so forth. I think that represents uh, the very, very important bucketing informationally of how people are understanding this war at the moment. Because if you look at Hamas's own depictions, they're very clearly the good guys in their own narrative. And a lot of people do follow that narrative uh, and they don't trust what they see in other media outlets. Yeah, and, and it's been it's been interesting to watch Hamas every night of the of the handover of the Israeli hostages very, very quickly has like a rapid media response force that puts out um I would say fairly highly produced videos. Clearly, they're using um, drone photography and cutting then to on-the-ground photography, and some of the scenes are are very well lit. Like they're clearly thinking in terms of the the information war here. But what we've seen in some of these videos released by Hamas as Israeli civilian prisoner uh, hostages are being handed over to the Red Cross is these masked uh, Qassam Brigade fighters, um, you know, lifting up elderly uh, Israeli women and placing them, you know, gently into the Red Cross vehicles or pushing the wheelchair of one of the, the wounded uh, teenagers, um, you know, kids waving at them. And, you know, we have to, you have to be really careful on a moral level of any video that is released of hostages. And that, that has to be the clear context for this. Like, I, I don't think you can say, oh, this tells us a definitive story, but it does tell us something about what Hamas wants to project. And, you know, they also published on their uh, Telegram channel what they claim was a letter written by uh, one of the hostages, essentially thanking them for uh, treating her and her very young daughter well as they were in captivity. Now, in the in the Israeli press, the portrayal of how the hostages were treated, first of all, there's very little information coming out. The Israeli government has not liked it when some uh, former hostages or their family members have have spoken because some of them have said, actually, we were treated uh, with, with respect. And, and people describe, you know, at certain stages we had food and at other stages it seemed like there wasn't food and that the access to medicine was inconsistent. But we clearly are seeing Hamas trying to project an image of itself as treating these hostages essentially as a strategic asset rather than, you know, as, as people we want to like torture in our underground tunnels. I mean, that, that, I'm saying that that's the image that they're trying to project in these videos. Yeah, it's very interesting. You point out these videos they've put out, they're very highly produced. Clearly, a lot of resources and time and thought has been put into the idea of having an information strategy that's almost as important as the military strategy for Hamas. Israel and Hamas are in a competition for global public sympathy and support, and also regional sympathy and support within Israel, Palestine, and also the broader Middle East. And Putting out these videos, portraying this image, whether it's true or not, that's actually secondary to the point. It's very, very important because they know that they need this international support, international perception of them as a responsible actor in order to win politically in the end, which is ultimately the goal of this operation uh, when they embarked upon it. I think that it's very unlikely these videos and these letter, for instance, will convince the Israeli public because the Israeli public is reeling from uh, the killings of civilians, which we know did happen on uh, on October 7th. But the rest of the world, there's still, you know, a lot of mixed feelings about what took place because of the context when it took place, the killings now taking place of Palestinian civilians, and the perception that Gaza was under siege and suffering for so many years and some sort of explosion was inevitable as a result of Israeli policy. So I think that still remains to be seen. But I do think that the fact that Hamas is trying to portray this image is very, very important because it's showing that it wants to be perceived as a responsible political actor. It wants to be perceived as a party which uh, engages in exchanges and political dealings which is irrational and which can be comported with international law or just basic uh, political negotiations. So I think that 
in doing so, it doesn't want to be seen as ISIS, which is completely outside the international system. It wants to be seen more something like the Viet Cong or the IRA, a party which engages in violence, engages in sometimes uh, human rights abuses, but ultimately is a rational political actor which can be dealt with. And it's in doing these exchanges, it's actually having a win. It's showing that despite what happened, we're still in that bucket and we're still in the zone of politics and you can deal with us. Well, and also if you're if you're monitoring Arabic language media or even Arab media uh, in in English, you know you're 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 seeing a lot of stories about the suffering endured by Palestinians who are being released under this exchange deal. And you know you're you're hearing the stories of teenagers and the conditions that they were held under and the fact that they were being prosecuted and held uh, in a in a military court system. And, and Hamas clearly is trying to juxtapose sort of the image it wants to portray and how it's treating the hot Israeli civilian hostages with the stories that are coming out um, from Israeli prisons in you know in the mouths of of the newly released Palestinian prisoners. There, there was also there's a number of surreal things that we've learned in recent days too. It seems like around the time when Benjamin Netanyahu was on the ground in Gaza wearing his flak jacket and his t-shirt and giving his uh, you know his speech in front of Israeli troops, that uh, Hamas's head Yahya Sinwar um, actually went down into the tunnels where some of the Israeli hostages uh, are being held, and according to People who who were there when he came down, hostages. He spoke with with almost flawless, non-accented Hebrew to the prisoners, um, and he of course learned Hebrew because he was a prisoner in Israel's uh, uh, jails for for years, um, and assured them that they were not going to be hurt and that that they're uh, working on a negotiation to to get them released. Um, it's it's interesting because it it's you know Mohammed Daif, the the head of the Qasim brigades. If you follow. Uh, Hamas-aligned media. There's been a lot of stories over the years. He's a very mysterious figure. Israel tried to assassinate him another a number of times. He's escaped from prison. He's sort of a legendary uh, figure. But they've tried to paint an image of him as having modernized and regulated the Hamas militia, the, the Qasim brigades. And so he also, he and Sinwar clearly are making a play to be accepted in the Arab world as a legitimate force, a guerrilla army with a political wing, but also it's aimed beyond that. It's aimed at a broader public globally that is increasingly very, very concerned, if not utterly outraged at what Israel is doing in Gaza with this scorched earth campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, from Hamas's perspective, the longer that they survive in this conflict, the more they can claim success because they've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Israel for about a month and a half now under extreme duress, and they're still intact. They're still fighting. They're still organizationally, clearly functional inside Gaza. None of the main three leaders of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Daif, or Marwan Issa have been killed so far. They still appear to be in control of Hamas itself. So the longer this goes on, the more the political costs add up for Israel, and the more the benefits actually in some way add up for Hamas. Because despite the destruction, uh, their motto and their modus operandi is resisting the Israeli government. And the more they can say they're doing that while their rivals in the Palestinian national movement are not, the more that their own star will rise uh, throughout the areas where Israel is occupying, not just Gaza, but also in the West Bank. And and just a final note on this, Maz, you know, as um, Israel's defense minister, Gallant, uh, said after the extension of the, of the truce by a couple of days that the enemy, when this is done, the enemy is going to first face the bombs of the Air Force, then they're going to face the, you know, the rifles, then they're going to face the, the ground invasion, and then they're going to face the bulldozers. And Joe Biden and his administration, while on the one hand trying to plant stories that uh, portray Biden as very, very deeply concerned about the, the humanitarian conditions uh, caused by this operation and, and, and trying to do what he can to, to extend the pause to get more humanitarian aid in. Biden's own rhetoric has, has made clear that it's narrowly focused on a period to get the hostages out and that he's all in for he wants he, he, it's it's a regime change you know you know war and and Biden is all in on it that they Israel is saying they're going to fight until Hamas is done and you know there's serious questions um, given what we've seen from Hamas and they're embedding within you know not, not I don't just mean embedding like literally having soldiers but they're integrated fully throughout Gazan society 
the idea that they were able to stop all rockets when the ceasefire was done, that they were able to make sure that there was total compliance with, with the agreement gives you a sense of how in control they actually are. And so Biden is basically signing the U.S. up for what is almost certainly going to become an extremely bloody quagmire for the Israeli military. Yeah, I think Biden, in the sense of trying to support Israel, is not supporting them in the way that's really effective. He's egging them on, in some sense, into a situation where there seems to be no exit. They're going to fight Hamas till it's destroyed, but what is that going to mean in terms of political damage to Israel, uh, loss of soldiers in their own army, but also, you know, occupying Gaza as an occupying force at the end of it in an area that's not very popular, have very little legitimacy. And they're also stretched occupying the West Bank and trying to defend the northern border as well, too. This entire idea of destroying Hamas is so distant and so difficult, and the end result is so ambiguous for Israel that really it's not so helping them in some, some sense to enable enable an objective that has no real plausibility of being achieved. All right, Maz, today we are going to go to Israel to get a, a pers the perspective of an Israeli human rights activist who has worked on prisoner issues, also works on um, the fate and lives of the Palestinians living under the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, and specifically works on the issue of how Palestinians are treated once they are thrown into Israel's military justice system. We're now joined by Roy Yelin. He's the director of public outreach for B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights group. Roy, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. Roy, let's begin with the situation in the West Bank. Of course, since October 7th, we've seen an outbreak of new Israeli settler violence. We've seen raids by Israeli forces um, into Palestinian communities. And by the latest numbers, I understand um, there's been more than 3,000 arrests of Palestinians. Give us a sense of what exactly has been happening over the past seven weeks in the West Bank. The West Bank is now like, uh, it, it seems like it's a pressure cooker, which is about to explode. And that's the sense that most people on the ground have. Because uh, w when we're talking about unprecedented level of settler violence, and also security forces, Israeli army and Israeli police raids on Palestinian towns and villages, we have to remember that the amount of violence was already high before October 7th. So we're seeing an exacerbation of a situation that was really like the worst on record. And Beit Salem, the organization I work for, has been in this business for over 30 years. So it's it's really tough and it's, it's vo very volatile. And while many in Israel and around the globe are extremely fearful of opening another front in the West Bank, seeing this violence, this horrid, horrendous amount of, of death and destruction spread from Gaza to, to other areas, we have to remember that for certain elements, political elements, both in, the, in, in Palestine, but mainly in the Israeli government, this is their work plan. This is the fulfillment of their agenda. So they're actively trying to push for that. There are elements, senior ministers in the government that want to see this violence spread because that might give them excuse to do further forcible transfers or mass atrocities on a larger scale because they want violence and they see that violence as a legitimate political tool, which is, of course, something we reject entirely. To, to what extent is this current violence? I mean, as you rightly point out, this, this is not new, but we are seeing an intensification of it. To what extent is this being uh, supported by the Israeli state itself, by the Israeli government? I'm referring to the, to the violence of the settlers that we've seen over the past seven weeks. I think that this narrative that the settlers are somehow separate from the state is false. We are defining settler violence as state violence, albeit unofficial one. Uh, the settlers are not wearing uniforms, but they are carrying guns that were provided by the army and the police. They are provided with complete blanket impunity from any type of uh, offense that they commit against Palestinians for many years. So they also know that there will be zero consequences for them taking 
this weapon and using it as they're doing. So this type of separation and saying there's good Israel and the settlers are bad is not the actual accurate description. Uh, what we see here is Israel trying to keep plausible deniability to a policy of land takeover. And of course now, when there is a government which is emboldened by many, many years of inaction by international community, they see that, uh, you know, it, it worked when they did it in like a very, very, you know, step by step and a very slow and measured pace in order to fly under the radar of criticism. But now they feel like they're more emboldened and they also feel like all gloves are off because there's a combat ongoing. There's a lot of hatred and all the focus, all the eyes are on what happens with Gaza. People are worried, sick about their relatives. They're worried about missiles hitting, hitting them from the north of Israel, from Hezbollah in Lebanon or from Gaza. And they pay little attention to what the settlers are doing and what other elements of the government are doing in order to aid that. So I wouldn't say this is separate. This is state violence, because if Israel would want, it can stop this at any second. And, and we're talking about something that has not, again, I, I want to stress this, what we're documenting hasn't started on October 7th. It's just intensified since then. But this is like a long ongoing effort by the state to forcibly displace Palestinians in certain areas that Israel wants to take over their lands and transfer it into Jewish hands. And, and this is what we're documenting. This effort is bearing fruit right now. The previous Friday, uh, negotiations began for a ceasefire and exchange of prisoners between Hamas and the Israeli government. Briefly, can you tell our listeners a bit about what we know about how these negotiations are progressing or what the mechanics have been for Israel and Hamas to actually embark on this exchange of prisoners? So I think from the very, very beginning of this round in, in the conflict, it was very clear that the only way to bring back civilians that were taken captive by Hamas would be to, to have a, um, a kind of like a prisoner exchange deal. I want to start and say that I don't want to make this type to fall into this uh, false narrative that makes, okay, they have hostages and we have hostages and, they, and we, we exchange them because I think this is like morally repugnant. Taking children, toddlers in some cases, elderly women and, and, and men from their homes is, is not comparable to having, with all difficulties and problems of the, of the Israeli judicial, military judicial system, it's not the same. But it's clear that Hamas is not an organization that is going to abide by international humanitarian law. I mean, murdering people is even worse than taking them captive. And, and it was clear that the only way to release them is to exchange. Israel um, has many Palestinian prisoners, too much. And we were calling for a hostage release deal because we think that placing civilian lives is like the most... The, the most crucial thing, no matter uh, on which side of this conflict. It took several weeks. I think uh, discussions of this uh, or rumors of, of negotiations have been accompanying the, the military campaign all along. And on Friday, event, like actually it was, we were announced on Wednesday they, that they struck a deal to release at least like women and children that are held hostage in Gaza in exchange for prisoners that serve, Palestinian prisoners that serve sentence in, in Israeli prisons. And with, with kind of like a ratio of like three Palestinian prisoners per Israeli kidnapped person. And since Friday, after a delay of a day, We've been seeing this like gradual release of prisoners each night. I have to say it's gut-wrenching and also nerve-wracking to happen to see if the ceasefire and if the exchange is going to take place. And it's also very, very, uh, it, it's, it, it's like an emotional roller coaster to see the, the families reunite with their loved ones. I think everybody's sitting in front of their televisions and crying because it's, it's, it's a really like emotional situation. Also keeping in mind that many of those people 
have to find out that a, a lot of their family members are, are gone or are still in Gaza held, held hostage. And they have no home to return to because the, their places of residence have been pretty much burned down or demolished, destroyed in this. And where we are today, we're kind of like anxiously awaiting to see whether this is going on, if, if this is going to happen today, and if it goes further, because we want the ceasefire to continue and the exchange to continue until all of the people are released. And I think this is the only way to do it. Also in terms of alleviating the dire and really serious, horrible humanitarian situation in Gaza, the ceasefire is, is sorely needed. I have to say that... As far as I'm concerned, I don't think that humanitarian aid should be part of any deal. I think humanitarian aid is essential for civilians and Israel should have let all the humanitarian aid that the civilian population in, that, in Gaza needs to enter from day one. I think kind of like bearing it and making it like part of, of, of the condition is, is, is part of the problem of seeing like using civilians and civilian lives, civilian needs as bargaining cheap in a very, very cruel political deal which is, is, is unacceptable and makes suffering on both sides of this uh, really unbearable. In a moment, we're, we're going to talk about the condition um, that the Palestinian prisoners are held in and some of the process uh, under which they are tried and held and what rights are afforded to them. But just to stay on this subject that you're discussing of the Israeli hostages, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in terms of nuance, but but it would be great if you could talk about the protests and the position of some of the families of the hostages being held uh, in Gaza. Uh, because while, while we see a lot of images of people engaged in the kind of collective suffering because of the loss of their loved ones or not knowing what's going to happen to them, we don't hear a lot about what they've been saying about Netanyahu's response or the Israeli government response. And there are reports in Israeli media that indicate that a deal could have been made much earlier where there were not uh, as, as many Gazan civilians, Palestinian civilians killed, uh, where the Israeli hostages didn't have to endure uh, yet more time uh, in the custody of either Hamas or Islamic Jihad or other groups. But but talk, talk about that dynamic, the, the protests of the families of the hostages being held, and whether or not Netanyahu actually could have made a deal uh, of this almost exact nature much earlier. I'm in the business of, of trying to make factual statements. So I, 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 I'm, I'm very, very cautious. But I, I also read reports of a possible deal we also heard from credible sources that there were different negotiations and that uh, Netanyahu said no. I think it's very clear to a lot of people in Israel that this government is surviving on borrowed time. The failure of Netanyahu starts even before October 7th, but October 7th is, 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 I mean, this is like his responsibility. He's the prime minister. He ignored numerous warning from the top echelon of the Israeli military, from, you know, everybody that has a brain. They, they saw the, that he is disintegrating the country with his attempt to release himself from the corruption, many corruption allegations that he's facing in court. And he was willing to take very, very bold risks, including fracturing the army, fracturing, conceding a lot of things to his far, far right coalition members. And the result was that the Israeli military and intelligence failure on October 7th. So the people were taken because of him. And... It's now, like, we, we all understand that in many respects, we already lost because the people that died, you cannot bring them back. So the best thing you can do to cut your losses is to bring the people that are still alive. And this is what the family members of the people that were held captive were demanding. And of course, it touched every heart of, of you know, or, or, or not every, I, this would be an exaggeration, but mo a vast majority 
of Israelis that were identifying with their plea to, to bring back their loved ones. And eventually, it created enough political pressure and also enough political interest for the government to, to accept the deal. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It, it seems like we, at this point, and it's totally understandable why, these people have just been through a, an unspeakable horror, uh, the Israeli civilians who um, who have been released. Um Maybe share some of what you have heard about their time in captivity during these past seven weeks. What what kinds of stories are you hearing about how people were treated as hostages and what they and their families have been saying about their time in captivity? There's a, I mean, the, the stories are just starting to come out. I mean, people need some time first to recover. Not all of them are in great medical shape. You can see visibly that a lot of them lost weight, some, some that had medical conditions that were ongoing, the, the conditions um, worsened. One is now in intensive care with severe risk to her life. I, I, I read that like uh, some of the children that were ill were not treated well. They didn't receive medical attention um, as they should have. And I think the stories will continue to come. But this is like no one really like was expecting them to be top notch. I have to say another thing in this regard, we're talking about people that are civilians, they're not part of, of the conflict. Preventing any type of connection between them and their families and not even letting families know what their condition is, is uh, psychological torture for the person who is imprisoned and to the family. There is a lot of resentment and anger in Israel towards the International Red Cross for not visiting the people that are held captive in Gaza. But this is misdirected, misdirected by Israeli politicians because the Red Cross cannot come and visit people if the party who is holding them is not letting them do so. So uh, this resentment is like, you know, it's, it's frustrating for, for people and they're looking for an outlet to that. But that's another thing, like being held for so many weeks, like not knowing, like having no connection to the outside world is difficult. We do know that some of them were able to hear reports of in, in Israeli media. So they were, there was like a television or a radio there and they could understand that people are, you know, worrying about them, caring about them and working to get them released. So at least that. It seems that Hamas is using the issue of prisoner exchanges and hostage releases to extend the ceasefire period. Is there a point beyond which you think the Israeli government or public would not want to continue the negotiations and continue with the offensive, uh, given that Netanyahu and others have said that continuing it is a priority of the government in general? First, we have to remember that there are elements in the government that voted against the prisoners' exchange as, as it was because they thought the military campaign should continue. And some, some people, I think it was the finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, from the far-right Jewish Zionist party, said, 
on the very first day that we have to forget about the people that were kidnapped and just fight Hamas and put that aside, like sort of like erase them and, and consider them collateral damage. So I think there are political powers that at a certain point will say um, we have to resume the, the fighting. I think it changes when it comes to, to the general public. The general public is more interested in seeing people back. And also, it's a relief for, I think, most people to not hear about dead soldiers because Israel has also, I mean, the daily death toll of, of Israeli soldiers in Gaza is also something which is very, very difficult to, to process and, and to deal with. So I think there's like a, very, a, a difference between what the politicians would like and what the public would prefer. Um, and there would probably be some balance yet. But also there's another possibility, which is totally outlandish, but I think it's worth at least mentioning, which is if people really consider Israel to have superior power and Hamas thinks that the only thing is that it feels that it, it has some responsibility or bears some responsibility for the civilians in Gaza, they can yield, they can release all the prisoners and they can leave Gaza and the war will end. I mean, this is like, we, we can imagine a lot of scenarios if we want to think about what is moral, what is just, what is like the right thing to say, to do. And I think like I'm, I'm very highly critical of my government. I think Israel is, you know, pushing all the wrong buttons dealing with this. But I also have to to say that I'm lacking Palestinian critical voices about Hamas and the destruction that it brought on Palestinian in general and also on the Palestinian cause, because if they want the free Palestine, I don't see how what they did is promoting that. Let, let's let's talk a bit about the Palestinian side of of this situation, and, and by Palestinian, I don't mean the Hamas side. I mean the the Palestinians who are um, are being held by Israel in prison, and the Israeli government has put out uh, a list of three hundred names that it says are available for a negotiated release in in return for the return of the Israeli hostages. And um, Roy, I went through that list, uh, the 15 pages of it. I, I read the allegations against um, each of the 300 individuals on the list. I read their birthdays. I read uh, how long they've been in custody. And I read whether or not they've been uh, convicted or sentenced. And and so first, just at the the, the top line level, my reading of this is that of the 300 names, 233 of these individuals, and the, the vast majority of them are teenage boys, have not been convicted at all. Is that, is that correct? Have not been convicted yet, you mean? Because the, yeah, they don't, uh, they don't have a <laughs> conviction and they haven't been sentenced. In other words, they, they have not been found guilty and they haven't been sentenced. No, but I think this is the, the, the process. So let me explain a little bit. I, I think this is like, it's not like there isn't going to be a sentence. It's the trick of the military judicial system uh, in regards to minors. And we're talking mainly about people that hurl stones at soldiers. It's, it's not something that necessarily really uh, justifies putting a minor in prison. Israel has a policy of, if it's a security offense committed in the context of uh, Palestinians against, against Israelis, it's considered to be a security offense. And security offense justifies, in the military court system, remand in custody until the trial for the entire endurance of the process from the interrogation to the indictment. As a result, it creates a lot of pressure on Palestinian prisoners to take plea bargains because they are already imprisoned and the imprisonment can take, I mean, the trial is a lengthy process. It takes at least several months and all this time they are spending in jail. So like for them, like if they take a plea bargain and the plea bargain also consider the time they already spent uh, in custody as part of the sentence, it shortens the time that they will spend in jail. And this pressure is like unfair because it also forces people that did nothing to take a plea bargain because if they would like to prove their innocence, if they have an alibi, the trial might take a year, but they will also lose a year of their life in prison 
So that makes little sense for them. But of course, like since there are a lot of incidents where Palestinians are, you know, resisting the occupation, uh, also with uh, some form of, of, of furling stones or throwing incendiary devices or something like that, then Israel has a lot of prisoners, a lot of minors in, in prison available to, to do such deal. Now, we've written a lot of reports on that. We think that this is like the system is, is bad. And we also have to take into account that this happens in the, in the context of a national conflict where this is not just, the, you know, young delinquents who are, you know, people that have some uh, criminal, you know, problematic, psychotic uh, personality. They feel that they are fighting for liberation. And we have to remember that context. It doesn't justify this fight for liberation just doesn't justify, you know, everything, but it is part of the story. And this is part that the Israeli society is trying to repress and, you know, look the other way, um, sort of ignore, because we are talking about hundreds of minors each year which are imprisoned, which is a terrible thing and should never happen in a democracy. Yeah, I, I just I, I was I was just trying to establish a basic factual um, statistic, which is 233 of the people on the list of 300 have not been convicted. They're in a process uh, of of military justice, um, and they have not been sentenced. I, I just I was just trying to establish that as a fact, and I appreciate all of the other context because this is really the the heart of what we wanted to ask you about. And I've read the Betzalem uh, reports on this. There, there's very important information. I hope everyone reads the reports that your organization puts out. But just let's let's use a, a typical case. You mentioned many of the of the teenage boys who are being held um, are there on allegations that they threw stones often at um, at IDF soldiers or other um, Israeli law enforcement or military uh, forces. So the uh, Israeli soldiers chase that boy. They take that child, you know, there's 15-year-olds, there's younger that have been taken in as, as your organization. There were like several 14 years old. Yeah, 14. And, and if you go back further, not necessarily about the 300, there's there's much younger kids even. But but on this particular list, 15, 14-year-olds, what happens then, Roy, once those Palestinian children or teenagers are taken by the IDF into custody? Walk us through sort of a typical case. So if, if they were taken on the spot, they were they were they were taken on the spot. But often the police or the army knocks on the door of a Palestinian family in the middle of the night, and they take the person they thought through stones. They are taken uh, without their parent, without uh, their legal guardian, into interrogation. They are kept there in conditions which are not very hospitable, and I I think like as a as a minor, it's especially scary when you have like no knowledge of where you are and without somebody, an adult supervision, adult that cares for you, of course. Um, we also have to remember that it's the army. Not, not everybody speaks fluent Arabic, so they have difficulties communicating the needs. And then they're interrogated and they're interrogated without, the first interrogation happens without a lawyer and without a parent which, of course, in the case of a minor, is hugely problematic. Now, around 2009, Israel decided to make the system better. So it's established a juvenile military court. And it, this, is, this sort of improvement begs a lot. I mean, it, you can unpack a lot by having the need for an army to have a juvenile military court because... The name in itself is, I mean, it, it, it kind of like self-explanatory why it shouldn't exist. And, and in this like type of like uh, amendments and improvements, they were talking about more meaningful parental supervision. But in fact, because of the fact that uh, most of the, the situation and the decision about the remand in custody of keeping the minor incarcerated until the end of legal proceedings takes place even before it gets to the juvenile military court. In effect, the juvenile military court has very much, it plays a very, very minor role other than approving the plea bargain that any, you know, the average 
decent lawyer would suggest to the kid's family. And they would say, look, you can kind of insist that your your child was not involved, but if you want it, and then you have to decide whether you have to have, you know, take the chances. Nobody knows with court if uh, they're going to be... Um, proven you know guilty or discharged or, or you can see your child on on a shorter period of time and then it's more advisable to take the plea bargain and then basically the juvenile court has very little to do other than approve the plea bargain and i've been sitting in several proceedings just to look to to understand how the system works it's it's like a rubber stamp, basically. It's a plea bargain after plea bargain after plea bargain. It's it's very very difficult. The other issue here, which is is more, in a way, it's it's even more um, pernicious, is the fact that the discussions in juvenile court are blocked to the media, and this is the same in Israel. In Israel, to protect the identity of a minor. To not have like you know repercussions for juvenile delinquents further on when they grow up, it's all behind closed doors, all the discussions. But when it comes to Palestinians, I think the interests are rather different. Exposing this to the media, to the public, actually serves the interest of the minor better, because as I said before, this is not a juvenile delinquent. This is not criminal minds. It's, these are children minors that are, are acting in the context of a conflict and they feel that they have like national aspiration for liberation and freedom and like teenagers they are doing things to push the boundaries it's not criminal behavior in the typical sense of what we would consider typical behavior they didn't go and rob a bank or a candy store they objected something which in their society is an oppressive force and this is something that we have to keep in mind and it's very is it's very very difficult for israelis to keep in mind because every, everything is labeled under this like blanket concept of terror but i think it's not everything is terror. I think like going with a knife and trying to stab a person, yes, that's horrible. But resisting the occupation, I think it's different. It's not the same. Oh, not all offenses were created equal. Roy, I want to ask you quickly, in the reports of the current negotiations between Hamas and Israel, individuals subject to administrative detention are not deemed to be included in these negotiations. Uh, and yet we've seen in recent weeks there have been an increase of administration detentions in the West Bank by Israeli forces. Can you explain briefly what this concept of administrative detention is and how it's relevant to the Israeli administration of the West Bank? Well, administrative detention is a very, very cruel measure in which a person is imprisoned without trial. The concept is like something that it has to be, in theory, it has to be done in absolutely the most rare cases where you have to apprehend a person in a ticking bomb situation where not apprehending them would mean that they would attack. It's also done in the framework of taking somebody and putting them in prison, not for something they have committed, but something they intend to do in the future. So like the benefit of the doubt, this type of like, well, maybe this thinking, maybe I won't do it is out of the, the question again. The other thing is that because there's no trial, there's no due process. So people can't really object or disprove the allegations that are holding against them. Uh, moreover, they don't even know what the, those allegations are. But of course, um, human rights organizations have recorded for many years that Israel is very liberal with this use of administrative detention to the degree which begs the question whether really like it's 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 a preventative measure or just uh, another parallel track to take away and to imprison people that Israel find it difficult to prove their guilt and of course this is like and in recent weeks because there's a lot of tension and there the level of violence is higher and since administrative detention is readily available for, for the Israeli security forces, 
they are using them quite liberally. And I think now the number is over 2,000 people under administrative detention. Those numbers were given to Hamuket, which is um, an Israeli human rights organization that provides legal services to Palestinians under the Israeli occupation. And this is uh, an all-time high in the number of administrative detainees. And we've been recording this for many years now. You know, there's there's something, you know, I mean, this is my opinion, but I, I, I'm i saying it because I think it's true. I, I think there's something really insidious about the way that Israeli government spokespeople have talked about the Palestinian prisoners that are being released as part of this deal. There, they, there has been, uh, since Israel released this list, there has been a kind of uh, conviction by fiat uh, on the part of Mark Regev and other Israeli government spokespeople where they are speaking as though it's an established fact that these individuals are known, verified, and convicted terrorists. That's, that is, is the general dominant projection of the Israeli line on this to certainly in the English language media. Um, and if you if you monitor what's being said on social media, this is now being repeated over and over and over again. There is not the nuance that you're talking about here, about throwing stones, about why someone, including a young teenage boy, might commit what I think we could describe as a, an act of political violence, you know, throwing a stone um, or taking out your anger. Maybe your brother was killed. Maybe you witnessed your family member being, you know, massacred and you are walking around with this rage over what, in your view, is an apartheid army that is by brute force terrorizing your family for merely existing as a Palestinian. That context doesn't exist, and, and it's so extreme that the interior minister of uh, Netanyahu's government, Itamar Ben-Gavir, issued an edict saying there are to be no expressions of joy. That's a direct quote. When these Palestinian prisoners are released, he said, quote, expressions of joy are equivalent to backing terrorism. Victory celebrations give backing to those human scum for those Nazis, and he told the Israeli police to deploy what he called an iron fist to enforce this order. What do you think of what I just said about the way that the Israeli government talks about these individuals that are being released, um, but also the order given by the interior minister that people are not allowed to express joy over the fact that their teenage boys are being released after having been put in a military justice system for throwing stones? Well, first of all, we have to elaborate a little bit about this person who's calling a uh, terrorist. Itamar Ben-Gvir was a member of Kach, which is an organization and political movement that was designated as a terror organization by Israel and also by the United States of America. He's a supporter of Kahana. When I'm talking about far-right elements of the Israeli government, he's the embodiment of those elements. And of course, when he's talking about no expressions of joys uh, and this type of brute policing of people's feelings and expressions, it's kind of like trying to enforce and to incite violence. This is an effort by him to ignite even more tension and to create even more friction between Jews and Palestinians, because this is his political agenda and because he is a supporter of terror. He is a supporter, he is a person who thinks violence is a legitimate political tool. Uh, so he's using this violence, and I, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling that the Israeli government put somebody like that in charge of the police in Israel, but we already, we are, all of us, we are paying the consequence of having people like that in power. I mean, the, the entire region is, I think, is paying the price, but also Israelis. To follow up on that, um, the, the, the general way that, that though the Palestinian prisoners are being discussed, I, I, I do think it's accurate to say that the dominant narrative is these are hardened terrorists that are being um, exchanged for babies, the elderly, and civilians. Now, on a technical level, it's true that you have people in prison that are being accused of violent crimes. That That is certainly true. And they are being exchanged for, to date only, um, uh, Israeli civilians, including very 
young children and very elderly people. But on a political level, what what Israel wants to drill into people's head, and and when I say Israel, I mean the state, uh, the government, is these people are all terrorists that are being released. And, And that doesn't seem to jibe with the individual cases or with what you're saying, Roy, about the nature of the charges that many of these people face. I think some of the it's it's correct to say that some of those people are terrorists. Some of those people they were convicted of uh, attempted murder, of shooting, but this is some of the people. It's definitely not all of the people and it's certainly not a majority of those people that were slated for release. And I think putting all of them in the same basket is first of all is like lying by omission in a way. And and it's covering up the the very harsh reality. This is like we're, we're we're in a really like dark place, and this type of place encourages people to have black and white kind of thinking, when in fact reality is different shades of gray. The moral reasoning requires much complicated equations than this type of like black and white or binary thinking of this is wrong and we're the good ones or and they're the the bad ones. The most unfortunate thing is that the people that are taking decisions are mostly on 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 the type of like uh, that employ this type of thinking and also have this thinking that it's us or us or them and they're saying it. I mean, you just have to listen to them. I don't think that necessarily now they have a lot of public support. In fact, the ruling coalition in survey after survey seems like it lost touch with the majority of the Israeli public, but they're still in power. We, we only have a, a moment left, Roy, but on the, the final thing I wanted to ask you about was if you if you go to your organization's website, Bet Salem, and you, and you look at it, you see right on the homepage the, the following quote. Israel's regime of apartheid and occupation is inextricably bound up in human rights violations. And and you you go on to say that your organization strives to end this regime as that is the only way forward to a future in which human rights, democracy, liberty, and equality are ensured to all people, both Palestinian and Israeli, living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. What we're seeing right now globally is not just activists who work on the issue of Palestine raising this issue of an apartheid state, but you're seeing now nation states, including leaders from within the European Union, starting to talk in the terms that you and other activists and human rights organizations have um, for some time. But I wanted to ask you as an Israeli, what what has it been like to be someone who works for an organization that is accusing your own government of operating an apartheid regime and now to see so many voices from around the world coming to understand or agree with the conclusions that you and others at Bet Salem and activists and organizations within Israeli society have been saying for some time? What, what is that like for you? I would say that it's like frustrating <laughs> because uh, we were ringing the bell when it was still possible to to deal with it before so many lives lost and families destroyed and people killed. And this is like, to be honest, it doesn't feel like, I, it's not like a, we've told you so, it's, it feels more like a failure because we were trying and maybe we didn't try hard enough or we weren't very successful. So it doesn't feel very good to hear it all around the world because it's too little too late. Well, on on that note, I wanna thank you and your colleagues for all of the uh, very, very important work you've done over these uh, these decades. And we'll all keep all people who are held prisoner right now or held hostage um, in our our hearts. Uh, Roy Yaleen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That was Roy Yaleen. He's the director of public outreach for Betselem, an Israeli human rights group. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our legal review was done by David Brelo. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. 
If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. That's theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating and review whenever you find our podcast. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. I'll just say parenthetically, I've gotten a lot of feedback lately. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.